Hey, thanks for queuing up the podcast. Before we jump into this episode, I just wanted to make you aware of three music marketing resources with an emphasis on one in particular. There's a good chance you're already familiar with my flagship title called the Gorilla Music Marketing Handbook and perhaps even the 5-Minute Music Marketer. Both of those titles are well worth your time, but I want to make you aware of another title that doesn't quite get the attention as those two do. And that one is called The Nine Irrefutable Laws of Music Marketing. I'm really proud of this book, and I think you would get a lot out of it. And basically what it covers is what I consider to be nine timeless principles of music marketing. So regardless of the new website, app, or tool, because they're always changing, as you know, these are principles you can apply no matter what. They're timeless. They tap into that eternal connection that people have with music and with music makers. So I think you would get a lot out of this book. It's available on Amazon in at least a dozen countries in both paperback and ebook formats. So go check it out. The Nine Irrefutable Laws of Music Marketing. And now, enjoy the episode. Hello, Bob Baker here. Welcome to the Music Marketing Podcast, where I dish out career and marketing advice for musicians, singers, songwriters, bands, and music business pros just like you. If you don't already, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play, TuneIn, Radio Public, and pretty much wherever podcasts are available. I'm really excited on this episode to bring you my interview with Bree Noble. She has a really inspiring story. She is the host of the long-running Women of Substance radio show and podcast, also another podcast called The Female Entrepreneur Musician. She recently published her first book called The Musician's Profit Path, also recently featured in Forbes magazine. In addition, she runs the Female Musician Academy. Do you see a pattern here? Uh, and she's about to launch the Profitable Musician Summit. Bree is doing some amazing things to inspire and empower female musicians in particular. I know you're going to like her story, so stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by The Empowered Artist, a call to action for musicians, writers, visual artists, and anyone who wants to make a difference with their creativity. Yes, that's a long title. It's also a book that I wrote and published a few years ago, one of about 15 titles that I've cranked out over the years. I'll just mention it for now, but I'll come back a little bit later and tell you just a little bit more about The Empowered Artist. But right now, let's jump into my interview with Bree Noble. Well, look here. I've got on Skype recording with me right now. It's Bree Noble. Hi, Bree. How are you? Hey, I am great. Fantastic. You know, I have heard uh, your name, it seems like a number of years now. I think I we have some mutual friends. I know I've got people who have signed up for your various programs who speak very highly of you, but we've never met in person, have we? We have never met in person, which seems 
crazy to me because I feel like I, I know you. You know, you listen to people on podcasts or you read their books. You feel like you met them already. Yeah. So there's like a, a mutual familiarity here. And, and I'm just curious because I didn't have a chance to ask you, but when did you first come across my, my stuff? Because, you know, I've been doing this for a little while, but was it many years ago or – uh, I would say I've probably seen your books many years ago, but like your your podcast, probably 2014 or something like that. Okay, so we're talking about five five years. Cool. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm I'm, I'm becoming the, uh, <laughs> the like the old Yoda or something. I'm a, a pioneer <laughs> back in the 90s. I was spreading this message. And so I know you've got a lot of exciting things going on, and we're going to be talking uh, real soon here uh, about the Profitable Musicians Summit, which you've got coming up here in April, a little bit later in uh, April of 2019. But first, I would like to use this opportunity just to learn a little bit more about you. I also know that you have a lot of advice. You've done a lot. You have your own podcasts, uh, which we're going to talk about, and you've been guests on other podcasts, and you, you know, I'll have this brilliant advice with tactics and things that indie musicians can use. But again, I would kind of like to learn more about you for my personal interests and also share your story with my listeners. And so, uh, and find out what makes you tick and how you got to the place where you are in your career. Cause we were on similar paths, you know? Uh, and so let's start from the beginning for, well, actually, first of all, you're based in California. Is that correct? Or where, where are yeah, you? Yeah. Right. Right now I live just like 20 minutes outside the South gate of Yosemite national park. So oh, in right. the mountains, central <laughs> Valley, really. But you're, but you are not originally from there now, but yeah, where were you, where, where were you raised? Where, where'd you come from? I was raised in in California in the Bay Area. So I'm from San Francisco, lived 20 minutes from San Francisco growing up and then the Central Valley and kind of just kept migrating south. I went to college and at Westmont College in Santa Barbara. And then I ended up moving south to Southern California and lived there for 18 years before I moved up here seven years ago to the Yosemite area. So you're definitely a California girl through and through. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Two years in Nevada when I was a kid and that was it. I've always been California. Well, that's awesome. So did you grow up in a musical family or yeah how what role did music play in your kind of earlier years there That's a pretty that's a pretty interesting question because pretty much nobody in my family was musical. I mean, they were all teachers and my mom was an artist, but I don't know. It's like hard for me to even think how I guys I came out like loving to sing. And so, you know, I had a family that really helped me develop that, but it wasn't like I saw all these role models of people doing music in my family, but my mom was an artist, so I could see, you know, people using their creative gifts. Cool. She was a visual artist? Yeah, she, I mean, she's, she actually became a decorative painter later on in life and, you know, did stenciling and murals and all that kind of stuff for for her business cool so, so you didn't get the typical oh that's a nice little pipe dream but you know get a real job and all that or do was she were they your parents encouraging yeah no she was totally encouraging because actually she didn't start her own business until she was she was living as a single parent and she she had a lot of guts to go out there and start her her painting business like she grew up, you know, when I was growing up, she wasn't working and then she went back part time and stuff. And then, you know, to go out on her own with this painting business when she was raising two kids was pretty gutsy. So I think if she figured she could do that, then I would figure out how to make music work for me. Cool. So you didn't maybe have a music specific role model, but you had like a what I like to call the creative, a creative entrepreneurial role model in, in that. Yeah, definitely. Very cool. But you had this inert uh, desire to pursue music and sing so from, from a young age. And so did you do like like through high school and college? Were you singing or did you start playing out? or? 
Yeah, I, I grew up playing piano um, and just kind of getting into music in church and that kind of thing, being in musicals. And then in high school, I went to a school that had just an amazing music program. And so like every choir I could be in, women's barbershop quartet, you know, local solo competitions, like anything that I could do, I was doing it. Now, I've looked over your official bio here. I have, I have your permanent record right in front of me. <laughs> and, uh, and I see references to a corporate job as a director of finance and an opera company. And then there was a period where you were uh, a touring artist. But it doesn't really give a chronology there. But So maybe you can kind of give me a little... Sure. So after high school, I went to college. I wanted to pursue vocal performance and music. And about halfway through my sophomore year, I started getting practical and I'm like, well, you know, what if I can't figure out how to make this music thing work? I better have something to fall back on. So I decided to take some business classes and ended up getting a double major in music and business. And while I was in school, I was with this touring ensemble that the school had, and we would go out and kind of like promote the school. And, you know, we went to churches and, and did inspirational kind of performances and went to like, I mean, everywhere, like juvenile halls and rescue missions and all kinds of stuff. So I got a lot of performing experience and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I loved talking to the audience. I loved performing. But once I left school, I just had no clue how to take that into a career. Like they didn't prepare me in any sense of the word to go out there and be a musician. And I'm like, okay, you, you got all this great musical knowledge. Now you know how to do, you can analyze like in music theory, like any kind of piece that you need, but forget about preparing you at all for a career. So I went and fell back on my business stuff, of course. And I was kind of an accounting and management focus there. So I went and started working as an accountant and I was working at a company for a few years and I just was really bored there because it wasn't a company that did anything I was interested in. They made water purifiers, you know, like that yeah. and healthy and everything, but I wasn't excited about it. So I'm like, at least if I'm going to work in business, I've got to find something that I'm excited about. So luckily I found this ad in the newspaper that the local opera company was looking for uh, an accountant. And so I went and applied there and I ended up, it was like during 1995, no, 99. And it was, the economy was, you know, really impacted in California. And there's just a lot of people looking for jobs. And I was able to distinguish myself as like, Hey, I have, you know, I've sung in operettas. Like I have this background. And so with like a lot of people applying for the job, I got it. So that was really cool to work for five years as the director of finance at a top 15 opera company and get to go to all the fancy parties and, you know, go sit in the front row at opening night and all that stuff. Yeah. And I love that story because you, when you first hear about, you know, oh, I got this passion for music and for singing. Uh, and then I, but then accounting, you know, it's almost like a joke. Often people say, you know, get a, get a job as an accountant. seems like the, like the polar opposite of that creative outlet you know but you found a way to meld them together with by working with the opera so you were doing the analytical accounting stuff that would most people most creatives would like go running to the hills from <laughs> but yet you you were in an environment that still supported your your passion for music yeah it was cool i mean we got to i got to be on the executive team and talk about you know what shows are we going to put on next year and you know who are we going to get to design the sets and stuff like that so that was fun and, you know, working around all these artistic people and, you know, the artists and everything that came in for every show that we did, you know, we'd get people from Europe and stuff like that. So that was that like 
fed my artistic side for a while, but pretty soon I was like, gosh, all these artists are doing what they want to do. They're out there performing, living their dream, and I'm handing them paychecks. Like, I'm not doing what I want to do. Right. You know, that just kind of fueled me to be like, I've got to figure out this music thing. I anticipate we're on the cusp of a new chapter in your <laughs> in your story here. Did, did you take that leap or quit that put in your your notice and I did and I'd like to say that it was you know my passion fueled me and I just went you know that's not exactly how it happened it's more like life just got so overwhelming uh because I had my first baby oh, okay and so I was working in this job that I w wasn't completely happy with and it was very stressful because when you work in a nonprofit in an arts organization, the money is very like, it's like feast or famine. <laughs> you know, when you're selling tickets, you've got all the money. And then in the summertime, when there's no shows on, you're like, can I make payroll this week? So that was stressful. I had a baby and I also just had this deep desire to do my own music. And so I kind of negotiated or figure out, out an exit for myself by figuring out that I could sell my house for a good chunk of change because of the way the economy was going in California. And so I was able to use that as kind of a nest egg to be able to quit my job. And that was a little scary because at that time I made more than my husband who had just gotten his first job as an English professor after getting his doctorate. So, you know, I'd like to say that I just couldn't take it anymore. And, and I just had to do music. Like that was part of it, but it was a lot of things, but right. it just gave me the time as I was home with my baby to actually spend time figuring this out because I'd been trying to do stuff on the side with music. And it was just a lot of like failed attempts, trying to find bands that I fit into that never worked out and always trying to do somebody else's thing instead of trying to figure out how to do my own thing. And then what year was this when you had your, had the baby and you were making this transition? It's 2004. 2004. Okay. So we're, still in the early days of the uh, the internet or, or Napster. The MySpace days. I, when I first started, you know, going out there and promoting myself as a musician, I definitely remember going out on MySpace and, right. you know, trying to get friends and all that stuff. Cool, cool. So what did you discover? How did you, yeah, what did, what did you end up doing with your own career at this point when you started pursuing it? What I did is I finally realized that as a musician, I also needed to be a business person. I needed to be an entrepreneur. And I'd taken all these entrepreneurship classes in college and I'd, you know, worked in this $8.5 million company, you know, running the budget there and, and making sure that everything happened. But I hadn't applied any of that to my music career. I had always been in that mindset, you know, that like 90s mindset of like, I need to find a record label to take me on and invest in me and, and you know, get me out there into the world. And until I get that validation, I can't have a career. And I finally yeah. realized, no, I can make my own career. And it might, you know, I'm not going to be like famous. I think that was part of the issue too, is when you're younger, what you want to be is famous. And when you get older, and at this point I was, you know, 32, you're just like, you know what? I just want to work in music. Like, I don't care if only the people in my own town know me. If I'm being able to perform a few times a week and bringing in money, I'm happy. That, and that's a great realization because I, I have this theory that I think the reason that people think that even like younger people that didn't grow up in the 
the old model of the music business, they still think that they need to be, uh, you know, a superstar to to be successful or va- validated because they were often inspired by somebody who was very mm. popular, like Lady Gaga or Katy Perry or whoever uh, in- inspired them to pursue music, and they they hold that up as the, as the role model or are are the are the, the measure of su- of success when there, as you know, there are all many shades of gray. There are people that you've never heard of that make really good livings in in the music world or other creative fields that have just found their niche audience and they're they're famous to someone you know and there's also people that have a record deal and they're well known but they're actually not getting paid very much so you know it's also the other side there and, they're and everybody thinks they're yeah. super successful but they're actually barely being able to pay their rent right and so I mean, now it's kind of widespread, even though I'm still surprised by people that have that knee-jerk reaction. Well, I need a deal. Me too. I need, uh, it's amazing. It's, it's, I've had the feeling it's like part of our – it's somehow in our DNA or something. <laughs> you know, I've gotten people that I'll be like, well, I can't find you on social media. How can I help you You know, promote yourself if you're not on social media? Oh, well, what, I, when, once I'm with my record label, they're going to handle all that. I'm like, no, yeah. they're not. They're, they're not at all. <laughs> in but, fact, if you're not on social media, they're never going to find you. So. Right. I find a lot of similarities between the book world and the music world uh, and that everybody thinks, yeah, they want the, either the publishing deal or the, or the record deal. But the most common thing that I hear from people that have gone that route, that have gotten signed and won that lottery, uh, one is that they, they always say, well, I thought the label or the, or the company was going to do more to promote my stuff. I, they had this misguided you know, notion. Mm-hmm. So it's always up to the artist or the author. And then these days, they won't. Most of those bigger companies won't even sign somebody or consider somebody unless they already have a, at least a modest success story of their own yeah. built up. So you have to take on that that role regardless, as you well know. But to come to that realization in two thousand four was pretty was pretty cool, pretty savvy of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd say it. I I got there probably by two thousand. Five into 2006 that was when I really got to that point it took me a few years of like still trying to do the old thing and like this is not working <laughs> and so what was your and I have to admit yeah I have I don't know these details were you like a singer songwriter were you recording your own stuff yeah I'm a singer songwriter and I was mostly in the inspirational and Christian market but then a lot of crossover you know singer songwriter acoustic you know that kind of thing um, I'm, I'm a, I play piano so it's it's piano based ballads and that kind of thing I always thought what I did wasn't cool enough to go out there by myself so I thought I need to fit myself into somebody else's band and at this point in 2006, I was starting to get little signs of validation that maybe what I had to offer, actually people, someone would be interested in, you know, on my own, like as a solo artist, someone wanted to publish one of my songs and somebody wanted me to, you know, do a, do a demo for their album or use my song on their compilation or something. And I'm like, okay, I don't need to fit into someone else's band. I need to figure out how to do this myself. And of course, Still, I got caught in that, like, I need to have a band mentality, which is what I see a lot of artists stuck in that were like me, because I didn't feel comfortable as a solo artist, like up there by myself. Like I could sing by myself. No problem. Like I've done that for years, but playing and singing. Oh, my gosh, that was stressful to me. So I thought I needed this band to like kind of cover my lack of musicianship when it came to like playing and singing together. And I formed this band and everything and we did a lot of local events, but I realized I was still completely 
hampered by this band because all of them had day jobs and they couldn't tour. Right. And so finally I just said, that's it. Like I need to step out entirely on my own. I need to be a solo artist. I need to figure out how to play and sing at the same time and just, you know, grind it out, like spend an entire month just practicing my 10 songs on my upcoming album to be able to play them in front of an audience. And I had all this mindset and these limiting beliefs that I couldn't do it. But when I actually set my mind to it, I did it and I wasn't perfect. And, you know, I, I made some bad, you know, chords a few times and when I was performing, but that was okay. Awesome. By that point, yeah, there was MySpace and other things were coming along. How much were you sharing online versus performing live? I guess you were doing that regionally in your in your area. Pretty much all live. I mean, it was before the age of live streaming or anything like that. So, you know, my album, my first like professionally recorded album came out in 2006. And I had been recording at home before. I'd done a lot of collaborations with people and I'd recorded like my own, you know, homemade albums and put it up on mp3.com and gotten some oh recognition, God. that kind of thing. Do you remember that? I remember MP3. that. It was before MySpace. Yeah. I was like a star of mp3.com. You know, I, I like, I was like on the top of the Christian charts on there and like my husband and I, one of our Christmas songs got onto their compilation CD. And so, you know, I guess you, you can be a big fan a big fish in a, or yeah. a small fish in a big pond or a big fish in a small pond. And so that was where I kind of got my start was mp3.com. But, you know, the first album that I recorded professionally, I was immediately out there touring and going all over California, performing at as many churches. I performed at like mom's groups because I had a child that I had to bring with me on tour. So I thought, why not perform places that have free babysitting? You know, so I performed at a lot of moms groups and like business, women's business organizations and nonprofits and churches and all kinds of different, you know, luncheons and corporate luncheons and things like that where I could bring my kid along and, you know, she could, she would like sit at the seat. She was like about three or four at that time. She'd sit at the CD table, you know, and she liked to organize all the CDs on the table that's cool. So you really yeah. went after this at this at this point. You didn't let that. You could have easily said, "Oh, I've got a child. I'm gonna have to put this off till she's in school or out of school." Yeah, I commend you. You obviously took it on, and went for it. I did. I did, and I took my mom with me most of the time on tour. So she, you know, she could take my daughter to the park and stuff while I was performing. So you mentioned, uh, as I know you were playing churches and other places, but you mentioned women's groups. And I know it was around this time, apparently like in 2007, that you started an online radio show called uh, Women of Substance. And I have a feeling that kind of started leading you to what you're doing now. But can you kind of tell me where that inspiration came from? Yeah, it's it's funny how something that small that you do one day like leads you down this path to where you are now. Hey, I'm just going to take a very quick break from the interview to remind you about The Empowered Artist. And so this was a book that I published like three or four years ago. And I've got to tell you of all the resources that I've created, and they're all very special to me. As we mentioned in this interview, books are a lot like children giving birth. But this was probably some of the most inspired writing um, that I've ever done the principles and the ideas that just kind of came through me and flowed out onto the digital page, as it were, it was really heartfelt and moving. And a lot of people have raved about this book. 
So basically, the book covers 45 principles of successful creative people. They're broken down into five different sections. Uh, Some of the titles of those sections are the 10 guiding principles you should internalize to become an empowered artist, essential elements for kicking your art activities into overdrive. Here's a really great section. It's called Creativity Career Killers, the top 10 misguided notions that may be holding you back. Also, Seven Secrets to Living a Fulfilling Life in the Arts. And the final section is called Turning Pro, the Essential Skills You Must Develop to Become a Self-Actualized Creative Entrepreneur. Now, in the subtitle of the book, which is a call to action for musicians, writers, visual artists, and anyone who wants to make a difference with their creativity, I really took that call to action to heart. And so each of the 45 principles uh, that I cover in the book ends with a call to action. It's a specific uh, step that you can take to actually implement and act on the idea of the principle. So filling your mind with information and inspiration is great. It's great to get pumped up and inspired. But where that really takes hold is when you act on it, when you do something in the 3D physical world that has you activating that in a way that's not only going to empower you, uh, but also impact other people in a positive way using your art as a vehicle. So that's what The Empowered Artist is all about. If it speaks to you, I will have a link to it in the show notes. It's available on Amazon in both paperback and ebook formats in at least a dozen countries around the world. But I have a special offer with some extra bonus stuff if you purchase it through my website. So again, look at the show notes of this episode, click that link, check it out. I would love it if the ideas in this work inspire you to do more with your creativity. All right, back to the interview with Bree. Stay with us. We'll be right back. If you want tips and strategies on how to start, grow, and monetize your business online, check out the Digital Revolution podcast with Eli Adams. We interview digital experts from around the world that share their personal stories. They talk about what they're currently working on and where they see the future going. But most importantly, they share tactics in their specific area of expertise with the hope of helping you improve your digital presence online. You can listen to the Digital Revolution podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, iHeartRadio, or simply click on the link in the show notes below. Women of Substance actually started in 2001, um, way back in the days of live 365 radio. I don't know if you I remember, remember that too. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. This so is- it was like, I could make this radio station of this, of songs that I liked and I could listen to my own radio station at work. So that was why I was still working at the opera. I, I found, have found all these women on mp3.com that are like these independent artists. You can never hear them on the radio. I just wanted to make this kind of like a mixtape of songs that I liked. So I made it this playlist on Live 365 back then it was totally free that you could sign set it up and it was for my own use and I just called it Women of Substance because my the whole idea behind it is like either these are super high quality singers high quality songwriters um, you know their lyrics are really moving it was just it needed to have substance it couldn't be fluff it couldn't be you know just party music or whatever so it was a lot of singer songwriters obviously. And so I I made this thing and it was just for me to use at work. And then pretty soon 
few years later, they started charging to have it on Live 365. And so I like shelved it and I'm like, oh, that was fun, you know, cool. So then when I was, when I was touring and I was meeting all these other indie artists, I was like, it would be cool to, to have some, a platform where I could showcase all these women. They're so amazing and they're not on the radio. And then I thought back to this radio station I had created back on Live 365. And I'm like, wouldn't it be cool if I could like restart this again? But I need to figure out how to pay for it. And so what I figured out was I could start taking submissions on Sonic Bids from artists that I didn't know. And so I could then choose them and put them on the station. And, at you know, this little thing that I'd created for me to listen to at work had actually gained this following and it was kind of still there on live 365 and people were listening to it but I wasn't you know adding anything to it and so I just November 2007 picked it up as a real station started getting submissions for it eventually by 2010 or so it became a commercial station we had commercials on there we had you know banner ads and all that stuff and eventually turned into a podcast in 2014 and now it's solely a podcast because that's kind of where the world is going with yeah. podcasts versus online radio. And you still it's and still going now? We are on episode number 950. That's awesome. Now you know what I love about this? Do you, do you happen to know who David Neview is? It, um, it sounds familiar. Yeah, so he's a guy, uh, he's a, a, a solo piano player. He was featured in Rolling Stone last fall when they did a story about the piano, the solo piano niche and how uh, certain artists are making, indie artists are making really good money from streaming. It was just unheard of, you know, or supposedly. But he was been promoting himself since the 90s. He's one of those early pioneers, too, and we've been friends since the, since the 90s. He was on Live 365. He was on mp3.com. But what he did is he created this thing called Whisperings. Instead of promoting himself, and you kind of inadvertently fell into the same same thing, but it's just instead of thinking, how can I get my music out there, he created a platform that promoted his genre. And so yes. he created Whisperings, and he did it on yeah different whatever platform was available. It moved around just like just like yours. And he would promote artists that were ahead of him, that were his idols, and other artists and so he, by association, by creating this platform that created the genre, he included his music, but it was probably very <laughs> subtle. He, he, as the curator of this thing, he rose in prominence. Now he's friends with a lot of those people that were formerly his idols. He tours, you know, and performs with them and has uh, does really well with streaming and other things with his solo piano music. But you kind of did that, too. It makes total sense. And I did play my music on occasion, but I always felt like it wasn't about promoting myself, you know, but mm -hmm. of course I'd want to throw it in there sometimes. And especially during the holidays, I always put mine in because I have a whole holiday CD. Yes. So you're, so obviously you're, you're creating a lot of goodwill with other female and women, musical women of, of substance. And so, and, and you've been doing this for years as someone who's been at my thing for for a long time too, 25 years nearly. Yeah, there is some residual benefit of doing good in the world or in your niche for so long. And mm -hmm. I can totally see where that led to where you are now. So let's talk about your transformation into an entrepreneur and teaching and inspiring women in particular, I guess, in the music business. Yeah. So, you know, of course, with all this, with women of substance, I was smartly building up an email list all this time of all these women, because, you know, my whole way of promoting the station was to get all the artists on board for promoting as well. And same thing with on social media. And so I had all these connections, thousands of female artists, you know, by 2014. And at that point, I had 
slowed down on my touring. I have two kids by then and, you know, they were in school and it just got more difficult and they didn't want me to leave. So that was when I decided, you know what, I've really built something here and I think I can transition. And so I saw that all these amazing artists that I was promoting and their music was so good. They didn't know how to promote themselves. They were like me back then. They didn't have the the gumption to go out, you know, and do it on their own. They thought they needed a label. They thought that, you know, just releasing their album would be enough. And they didn't know how to do all the business stuff. So I thought, you know, the world's really missing out by me being the only one to, that's playing these people. They, you know, more people need to know about this music. So at that point, I just had it in my mind, you know, I'm going to start this academy for women where I'm going to help them learn how to do the business side, help them marry the two like I learned, and then just all the online marketing that I learned along the way, promoting women of substance. And so in 2015, I started a podcast, The Female Entrepreneur Musician, and that was going to be kind of my lead in to starting the Academy, which I started in June 2015. So we've been going almost four years now. So four years since you officially put out kind of your shingle to, to yeah. officially teach. I'm sure you were doing it through conversations and other, in email, you know, and emails and things, but this was like a more official, formal way. Yeah, you know, you start that. to realize people are asking you for advice and then you're like, oh, you know, maybe I can actually do something with this and, and people see me as an authority on this. I think it's interesting. You kind of mentioned it earlier, Bree, how, you know, and this is pretty much the way life and careers work these days, instead of having this premeditated version of a career path, you did Women of Substance just to create a playlist at work, which then <laughs> turned into something you didn't, you, unexpected, which then led you down a whole nother path. Isn't it funny how life works that way? You know? it's, it's really cool. I love it. And so here you are. So you got the Female Entrepreneur and Musician podcast, which I guess you created to focus on this educational component mm -hmm. and so your first, like, I guess, offering uh, to the public, and again, I'm, I'm also looking at this from an entrepreneurial perspective, how you took your expertise and your experience and, and turned it into a business in a way that you could monetize it and support yourself and your family. So you didn't go with a book first. You didn't go, did you do one-on-one -on -one consulting or whatever? Or was the, nope. the Academy like the first I offering? I straight into the Academy. And the reason was because I knew I had this email list of people and I had built up trust with them. And so I felt like I could just try it and see how it goes. And so I literally sold the Academy with nothing in it when I sold it and I sold it. And I, my first members are 18 amazing women that put their trust in me. And, you know, I said, I promise there will be stuff in here by the end of June, but there's nothing in here yet. And you guys will have all the input on what you want me to teach you. That's awesome. Well, I know from having been in this information product space for a long time that it's easy, I guess, to launch a membership thing. It's it's another thing to keep it going and keep it activated. And you're dealing with attrition and members coming and going, and you're always got to bring new people in to make it viable. And so that's one aspect of it. And there's, there's a lesson there in uh, it's nice to be able to offer something without creating it yet, because a lot of times people will spend six months writing a book or writing a course or something. And, and it could have fallen completely flat. I could have gotten zero or one, and yeah. I would have just been, oh, this was the wrong direction. Maybe I'll go write a book, you know. Right. Right, but it's obviously that, that, but that you launched that then, and it's still going to this day, right? 
Yep. And I, and I started with, I only offered an annual membership at the beginning because I needed that runway. I needed to be able to hire a VA. And so I would have the time to, you know, focus on creating the courses inside and stuff. And so I did offer an annual membership first only. And then eventually I started offering a monthly option. And so what is it like, not everyone, like there are a lot of people that have expertise in something, but not everyone can teach it or to, and can inspire others. What do you think is about you led you to teach or that like, did you feel comfortable teaching at first? Was it something you had to get accustomed to or maybe it's genetic? I don't know. Cause I was saying my family is a bunch of teachers and then I married a teacher and you know, so I don't know, I guess I never knew that I was a teacher, but I do like to speak when I was a, a solo artist. I didn't even mention this. Like a lot of what I did was a, a program of telling stories and singing. So I would have like a 45 minute program. I only had four songs in there. A lot of it was telling stories about my life. And so I knew I loved doing that. I knew that way back from when I was in college and I was performing then and speaking to the audience. I loved it. So I guess I thought, well, if I can tell stories, I can teach because all I am doing is telling stories about what I've learned, you know, through online marketing and business and, you know, all my experience in, in business. And I'm not trying to teach them everything. I'm not trying to teach them songwriting. I'm not trying to teach them how to build their home studio. We're only talking about the marketing and business side, which I feel is what a lot of artists are struggling with. Yeah. Well, having been in this as long as I am, p people start to think of you as a generic music business expert. Right. So I have people approaching me or e sending me emails about contracts and royalties, and I'm going, Ugh. man, I am like clueless. Or, yeah, me or, either. Or I mean, that's not really my thing either, yeah. <laughs> I'm the worst person to ask accounting advice for because I'm horrible oh. at tracking you things You can send like them to that. me. I'm, I'm good with that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah so... Like productivity and stuff, that's my thing. But like, yeah, not like royalties and contracts and, and you know, all those like legal stuff. Stuff, that's yeah. not me. In my niche, if I, yeah, because I've been doing this a long time, it's strictly on the marketing side, but I focus a lot on the artist fan relationship mm. and the psychology behind it, like the psychology and the mindset of the, of the artist, the psychology of the fan, thinking of things from their perspective. So, so you know how to communicate with them in a way that's going to resonate yeah, with I them. I love that. That's I, I call it the uh, fan discovery journey. It's like, how do you get somebody from just first hearing your music to like, loving you and wanting to tell all their friends about you. Let me ask you a couple of quick questions, then we'll talk about the upcoming summit. And I want to uh, just I'll talk about your book and, and all that good stuff. But did you have any like entrepreneurial role models, like people in this information teaching space? Definitely. I mean, I would say early on, John Lee Dumas was a major one because I got into podcasting. So yes. he was a major role model there. David Seitman Garland, I got in with his Create Awesome Online Courses program early on, which helped me create the things that I created in the academy. And, you know, it's crazy. 2014, I joined his program. And now in 2019, I'm actually helping on his team as a coach, helping other people build courses. So wow, that's kind cool. of a, a cool journey because I figured, you know, I spent all this time and money learning how to do this stuff. Why not help other people? So right. that's one. And then people like Amy Porterfield are just really inspiring, you know, strong women that are that I love the way she teaches. So I think like as a teaching model, she's a major one for me. But those are all podcasters of various degrees. That's, it's true. That's, that's, I, I love podcasts. Yeah. So that's kind of just happened. And I've listened to them all. I met David because he lives in here in St. Louis. It's funny. The first two people had three names. Yeah. John Lee it's Dumas. True. 
David Seitman Garland. Poor Amy. She only has two names. But yeah, oh, no. Amy is a great voice for podcasting. I love listening to her. Just yes. the tone of her, her voice. She's got great information. Um, and if you were just to identify, I, I didn't war warn you that I was going to be asking this, but if you were to identify a couple of personal traits that kind of led to your success in this world, uh, and I'm sure you could apply them to yourself as a musician, but let's talk about the entrepreneur side. What, what are the traits that allowed you to succeed with this path that you've been on? I mean, I think the biggest one is like persistence and consistency mm -hmm. because you know, I always had in the back of my mind, I, I had heard somewhere, you know, 95% of entrepreneurs give up right before they're going to make their breakthrough. And I always thought, oh my gosh, wouldn't that be terrible if like next week I was going to have my breakthrough instead I just gave up, you know? Right. And so I always told myself, if all I do is don't give up, I will succeed. Yeah. And so I just kept kept keeping on you know I mean there's plenty of bumps in the road let me tell you you know so it's it's not like always smooth sailing so can you uh and, and since you brought that up is there is there like one particular challenge that you could share like a road bump that you hit that you wouldn't mind just talking about real oh, yeah. briefly then how you overcame it um, yeah. I would say the first time I ever tried to do a webinar was like a nightmare. And I think so many entrepreneurs have this kind of story where you like, you get all these people signed up for a webinar and you go to do the webinar and like the webinar software won't work Yeah, and you cannot go live like for whatever reason. And it just totally crashes. And, you know, I just like went upstairs and said, I need a margarita right now. You know, like I was just so upset, but then. <laughs> But then I, I went into this, you know, community that I had and I have entrepreneurs, this kind of mastermind community. And I said, this is what happened to me. It's I'm mortified. Like no one's going to trust me again, blah, blah, blah. And then, and, you know, I got so many responses of like, oh, this is no big deal. This happened to me many times, right. you know, and like all this encouragement of like your audience is behind you. They're not going to hold this against you. They understand that technology sometimes doesn't work. And the biggest thing was I went back the next week and I did another webinar. You probably knocked it out of the park and everything worked relatively well. I wouldn't well. say that, but I, yeah, it worked. <laughs> everything worked the next time. And, you know, there was 30 people there. And then the next one, there was 50 people there. You know what I mean? And you just yeah. have to keep moving forward. It's so cool. And any other traits besides the persistence? I think, I mean, definitely being authentic, like not being afraid to talk about your mistakes as well as your wins uh, has been a big one for me. And then just wanting to build a community. Like I have a desire to, and I think this started with women of substance. Like I have a desire to put other people on a pedestal, put other people out in the world and say, look at what this person is doing. They're awesome. I mean, I have a huge desire to do that. And because of that, I've generated a lot of goodwill and it's not just none of it is fake. Like I, I won't say anything about someone unless I truly believe it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I have promoted a lot of artists and I've generated a lot of community amongst women because it's, it's a true desire that I have, not because I thought it was going to help me get ahead and all that stuff. And, you know, in, in the end, it has helped me, helped me build what I've built now. But it was always centered around me wanting to help these artists and feeling like the world would be a better place if more people heard their music. Well, what you said there was just uh, music to my ears. This is, I think, the second time that word or phrase goodwill has come up. And being genuinely and genuinely wanting to help 
people. So it's like it's a bigger mission that's beyond serving yourself and shine the light on others. I remember I can't even remember the artist's name, but I interviewed somebody many years ago and she talked about fan worship. And usually when you hear that term fan worship, it's the the fan worshiping the artist and putting them up on a pedestal. Um, but she said she worships her fan. She flipped that around and showers them with gifts and praise. And that sounds like that's your approach with your, your audience, too. Yeah, you know, and I think I made a mistake in that early on in my music career is that I used to kind of put this wall between me and the audience. And I'm like, I'm on the stage and they're down there, you know, and I, I didn't ever mean to think that way, but I think that creeped in. Mm -hmm. And once I realized that that was happening, I tried everything I could to break down that wall and, you know, talk to them all afterward and beforehand and as much as I could and communicate on social media. And it's just been the same way with this business. I don't ever want to feel like I am the teacher and you are the student. If I can bring on one of my academy members to talk about something that they're really good at, then I'm all about it. Like, I don't have to do all the work. You guys all know something, too. Exactly. Yeah. And that's a great lesson for other people in the information space. I don't have an ongoing membership community like that. However, I do these 30-day challenges a couple times a year. Yeah, I'm very involved, and certainly I'm creating the materials and the format and all that stuff. Uh, and I definitely get in there and interact, but there's often a private Facebook group. But the, I create the environment where they can then inspire each other and benefit from the collective wisdom of the group. It's the power of community, and, and I love that about what I do. And I told my community manager, um, Beth, I said, because she said, I'm so inspired by like how they were helping each other when I, I could get in there for two days because I was on a trip or something. And I'm like, yeah, you need to actually empower them to put you out of a job in yeah. that area so you can work on other things, you know? Exactly. Um, so let's talk about uh, the Profitable Musician Summit 2019. Is this Now, this is the second year that you've done this? This is the second year. So last year's was the first one. And um, last year's was focused all on income streams which was really fun. We had 40 different speakers. They talked on 33 different income streams that musicians can use. Um, but this year is all about profit. It's all about the bottom line, the two sides of the equation and how we can get more money that stays in your pocket. And I know that the summit concept is not, I mean, it's been, you know, a number of people in different industries have used this, but basically you have a collection of experts and is there 30 some odd this, this year? There are 33 experts this year, um, mostly in the music industry, but a few people from the finance industry, because I wanted to make sure that we covered things like tax deductions and accounting, you know, all from the musician's perspective, cool. of course. And are these going to be like video interviews that you do with each of these folks? Or They are. They're video interviews. Some of them are actually presentation style. So you know, a lot of these people speak at all the conferences that all we musicians enjoy going to, you know, ASCAP Expo and DIY Musician Conference and the Taxi Road Rally. Like these people are out there speaking on those stages from home during the summit, which is awesome. Yeah, I love that. No travel or airports are frisking by TSA involved in it. <laughs> Any of those. I know, and no oh. expensive hotels because it, it can get expensive. Yeah. I don't have that in front of me, but I know when I looked earlier, I, I actually have friends with a number of the people that are, uh, that are speaking. And I guess this is one of those things to clarify people can sign up for free to get access to. Yes. So interviews are released every day for 10 days, and they have 48 hours to watch the ones that come out. 
And then we do offer them the ability to upgrade to the all access pass, which allows them to have lifetime access to the interviews. So if you're, you know, if you're busy, if you work a full-time job, if you just want to be able to go back and watch them again, and we actually, for the all access pass people, we provide them with very lovely notes that we've taken on the, the presentation. So you don't have to take notes. You can actually just read our takeaways and our action plans, we call them. Cool. And this uh, looks like it launches uh, yeah, it's for, for 10 days starting April 22nd. Right. And it's totally free to sign up for that. And I believe the uh, the website that they can go to, which I'll put in the show notes, was Profitable Musician singular summit.com right That's all one right. word profitable musician summit and it is open for registration right now so go register while you're thinking about it and you will make sure to be getting the emails to remind you to watch the videos when we start the summit cool then in january of this year you released was this your first book Yes. It's yeah, it's like giving birth to a baby. Another bit yes. Yeah. I, I've given birth I mean, to you know, you have a lot of books. At least so. yeah, fifteen physical books and then dozens of oh other my. things that are like e ebooks and online courses and yeah, they're all yeah, I have a large family of of, of information <laughs> children out there that all need nurturing. But this is called The Musician's Profit Path. The five-stage blueprint to create massive growth in your fan base and sustainable income for your music career. And I thought I wrote long titles. Yeah, <laughs> so, it's long, but it's pretty descriptive, right? You know exactly yeah. what it's about. And it, yeah, that's oh, that's a great title. Filled for those of you who are uh, you know going thinking of doing a, a book that's filled with benefit-rich <laughs> references to what the reader will get. So. Good on you for for doing that. Um, so that just came out. Uh, is that a ebook and paper book? What what formats yeah, is that? Both. Both. Okay. Cool. Yeah. What was your experience like creating and then launching your first book? You said that was like yeah, like childbirth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just like the the writing to me, like the writing portion was like you know going through contractions. I don't know. It's just it's so it's so all consuming and 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 difficult, but it's so worth it. It's been great. I mean, it's gotten great reception, great reviews, and it's based around kind of the way that I set up like this five stages of your music career, the way I see it and the way that I feel it should be done. Not to say that I did it that way, because this is kind of my observations of like, if I could start over, I would have done it this way. I did some of it this way, but I see a lot of artists doing things backwards and I want to save them all the heartache and, and pain of, for example, releasing an album when you have absolutely no fans. So, you know, we want to build that fan base up first and, and do it in an order that makes sense monetarily. So you're not, you know, out $15,000, have a pile of boxes in your garage and you have nobody to buy them. Great information. And so people can uh, not only go to the, which we mentioned earlier, the profitable musician summit.com to learn more about that this month, which is ongoing. Uh, well, breenoble.com is your website for all things Bree Noble re related. You've got the women of substance, is it what? W O S radio. W O S radio.com. And then you got your female musician academy.com. So, yeah, I'll have all those links in the show notes, but you've got a lot of stuff going on. Thanks a lot, Bree. I hope we meet in person sometime soon. Uh, Me too. But until then, uh, thanks. Thanks a lot for your time today. You're welcome. 